Good morning, Mosaic Church. My name is Robert West, and I'm one of the pastors here at Mosaic, and it's so good to be with you guys today. It's so good to sing songs, the full house, especially for the kids here. It's good to hear your voices, uh, and it's just good to remember God in this season together. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we love you, and God, we thank you for this time and this season to remember your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you, God, that you... You knew our state, Lord. You knew our need for you, Lord. You knew that it was great. And Lord, you sent us your son, your only son, Lord, to be born a baby, to live a life of suffering, Lord, to die on our behalf. But Lord, we thank you um, that he rose again to newness of life and ascended into heaven, Lord, all for us. We love you, God, and we praise you. We pray that you be with us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as Pastor Kyle reminded us last week, we are in the season of Advent. And it's a time of active waiting and remembering of our Messiah. And historically, the first four Sundays in December, the four Sundays in December, are a time where the church would look forward to the second coming of Christ, and we meditate on this Christmas season. And just as God's people are waiting on a Messiah, we as God's redeemed people wait for his return. And if you look at the Bible, the story of Scripture, God's people have often been in a season of waiting. We could look at Noah and the ark, waiting for the waters to recede. We can look at the Israelites as they were awaiting rescue from Pharaoh. The Israelites then go to a time of wandering in the desert for 40 years, waiting for the promised land. Judah is then exiled from that promised land and are hoping and waiting for God to return them. And then 400 years of silence, of God's people waiting, waiting for God to speak again. And now we as God's people wait again for his return. And I'll tell you, waiting, at least for me, is not fun. I don't like waiting. To quote my two-year-old daughter, I don't like it. I don't like it. If I had a magical button to fast forward, I would use it, and it would not be good. I would go to my birthday, to Christmas, and then probably a fishing trip, and I would use it, and it wouldn't be good. Because waiting, we know, deep in our hearts, It's good for us. Waiting teaches us something. It's meant to teach our hearts something. If you're a parent, I imagine your kid has told you at some point, if they're old enough, I can't wait to be a grown-up. I can't wait to be a grown-up. And you probably look at them and say, it is so good to be a kid. It's good to be a kid. We learn so much. It's good to wait. And Christmas morning, we all know, would not be the same if we didn't have to wait for it. But the fulfillment... It's so sweet when it gets there. God uses our waiting to teach us something. And things are just better when we wait for them. Dinner tastes better when we are hungry. And waiting for God reminds us of what we need and who we're waiting for. Now, last week, we went through the promise of John's birth, the one that would go and prepare the way for the Messiah, Jesus. And if we know our Old Testament, we know that stories like this of an unexpected birth, especially with older parents, was pointing to something big. We could look at Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rachel, also Hannah and 1 Samuel, and we see that in these stories that God is about to do something big. And this story, as we know, is no different. Something big is about to happen in God's story. And we're going to spend our time today looking at Mary's song, also called the Magnificat, which just means magnifies, magnifies. And this is one of four hymns recorded in the book of Luke, and one of four songs sung by faithful women throughout the Old Testament, the others being Miriam, Hannah, 
and Deborah. But before we read this song together, I want to remember who wrote it and, and just to tell us a couple things about the person singing these words, saying these words. Mary was a young woman living in the town of Nazareth. She was betrothed to a man named Joseph, but she wasn't yet married. The Bible tells us that she was a virgin. She was almost certainly unable to read or write, and we know that she was of low social status. And she lived in a community that would have subjected her to public humiliation and shame if she had been perceived as an adulteress. So with that in mind, let's read the words of her song together. We're in Luke 1, starting in verse 46. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Now Mary's song teaches us that we magnify God when we remember him and when we believe him. We magnify God when we remember him and believe him. And before jumping into the words of our song, I do want to go back to the passage before that Lainey read as well. And to me, the surprise here in reading the text of Mary's song is that her hymn of joy doesn't follow the angel Gabriel's good news to her. It follows after her time with Elizabeth. Let's go to first, for, uh, verse 39. It says, In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now again, <clears throat> when, I, when I read this, it was surprising to me that it didn't follow the angel Gabriel, but her cousin Elizabeth. But as Rebecca McLaughlin points out, chronologically, this declaration from Elizabeth represents the first prophetic words spoken by a human and recorded in the Bible since the prophet Malachi four centuries earlier. Now, God is doing great and amazing and wonderful things in the life of two mothers, both young and old, who magnify his name. And so the first question we have to ask is, what does it mean to magnify? What does it mean to magnify God? Because we see that Mary responds to God, to this good news, by magnifying him. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And to magnify God is to declare how great he is, to exalt his name, to praise him with a desire that he would be known for who he is. Now, I want to ask the kids in here, I want you to raise your hand if you have ever used a magnifying glass. Magnifying glass. Okay, does a magnifying glass help us to see, things, see big things or small things? 
small. It helps us to see small things. So if you were to look at an ant in a magnifying glass, it would look bigger than it is, right? You could see the details of this small thing. But guys, God is not like an ant. He's not like an ant. God is big. And so to magnify God here must mean something different. God is like a lion. He's like a mountain. His glory is like a thunderstorm, something that takes your breath away. To magnify God here is more like this. Sometimes we, we look around and, and we look around like this. We don't, we don't want to see God for all he is. We kind of just want to take a peek. But to magnify God is to say, open your eyes. Open your eyes and see him for who he is. Open your eyes. Look at God. Magnify him. And Mary's soul is crying out, how great is this God? How great is he? And this is what God's people are made to do. We are made to worship God, to magnify him, to tell the world how wonderful he is, to exalt his name. And we see this as God's call to his people from the first book of Genesis to the last book of Revelation. In Genesis, we see that man is made to be an image bearer. Men and women are image bearers of the most high God. And he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, to magnify his name in the earth by their very presence. And at the end of the story, in Revelation 21 and 22, we see a picture of the new heavens and new earth where God's people are in that same earth, image bearers of God, magnifying his name forever. And Mary displays this posture, this right posture towards God. When she receives a gift from God of being the mother of Jesus Christ, his earthly mother, she makes much of God. She doesn't respond with pride and saying, look what I have done. Mary is not perfect. She doesn't say, but Lord, this will be so hard for me. What, what will this mean? She, no, she magnifies God. She praises him for this gift. Charles Persian says of Mary in this passage, the more God gives to a true heart, the more it gives to him. And how true is this of Mary? And if we look at Mary's words, one of the most beautiful things about it, if you study this, the words all throughout this song are filled with verses and references in the Old Testament. It's done so much throughout this passage that scholars can't even really agree where she is or isn't speaking scripture here. Mary knows the word of God. It's overflowing from her heart. I'll give you a couple of short examples. We can look at Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2 where Hannah says, My heart exults in the Lord. She says, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Or David's words in Psalm 103. David says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. It says to comfort all who mourn. He then goes on to say, for the Lord loves justice and my soul shall exult in my God. One more, Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now, as we said earlier, Mary would have had no ability to read or access written scripture. She listened to it. She meditated on it. Mary took God's words as precious to her. And now we're often hesitant as Protestants to point to Mary, which again, Mary is not perfect, 
But she is a great example to us of faithfulness to God's word, of how serious we should take and chew on and meditate on and know God's word. We see in Luke 2, he points to Mary's character where he says, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. He says this a few times about Mary. If we look at some of Mary's other words in scripture, there aren't that many, but most of them, we see her faithfulness. The angel Gabriel, after he gives her this good but weighty news, she responds with, how will this be? And I am the Lord's servant. We see at the wedding in Cana in John, her faith in her son is evident, even as he has grown up. The servants are saying, we're out of wine, what are we going to do? And she goes to Jesus, and she says, we need wine. And she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. Mary believes in Jesus. In fact, the only time in Scripture that we have recorded words of Mary maybe faltering a little bit is after Jesus remains behind in Jerusalem, they leave after visiting the city for Passover, and they say, wait a minute, where is Jesus? And they go back, and she says, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And you know what? I'll give this one to Mary. <laughs> I, have, I have a 12-year-old, and if, if they stayed behind in a city and I didn't know, I would probably use harsher words there. <laughs> but when we speak... When we speak, when words come out of, our, out of our mouth, what do we say? What, what do we sound like? Are our words filled with worry, with anxiety, or fear? Are they meaningless, lacking depth? We see that Mary's words came out of her joy, and Jesus tells us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He doesn't say it's the abundance of our circumstances, our difficulties, our struggles. Jesus tells us that out of what is in our heart, our mouth speaks. So if we want to sound and speak like Jesus, we have to remember his words. We have to have them on our hearts. And guys, there's a million ways to not do this. Social media, looking at your phone, emails, thoughts, dwelling on your shame, podcasts. I'm not telling anybody anything new here. We all know the traps that our hearts fall into, but we continue to walk in them. We continue to walk into them. And it's hard. It's hard to meditate on and even harder to memorize Scripture, to memorize God's Word. Because it means that we have to replace something that we like and enjoy with something else. It requires a sacrifice. But I'll ask you this. I'll ask you to consider that knowing God's Word, it doesn't mean that you have to know every exact chapter and verse Okay, Mary is not quoting chapters and verses here. God's word is pouring out and overflowing from her heart. It's out of the abundance of her heart and God's word that she is speaking. And I'll tell you that taking time to remember and to reflect on God's words will form and shape your habits. It will bless the people around you. It will season your speech with salt. And we see with Mary's song, it produces beauty. It's not just rote memorization, the word of God produces beauty in the world. So I pray that we as God's people would, out of the abundance of a heart filled with God's word, would speak. But we see in the way that she's seeing scripture that Mary is remembering what God has done. Memory of God magnifies him. We magnify God when we remember God. And so how does she do this? How should we do this? Again, we see all throughout scripture, God calls his people to remember it's not just a suggestion. They're often commanded to remember, to remember what God has done. We see it in the Old Testament in Exodus 13. He says, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt. 
Or in Deuteronomy 6, he says, these words I command to you shall be on your heart. In the New Testament, we can look at Ephesians 2, where he says, therefore remember, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, remember that you were one time separated from Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, but now you have been brought near. Or in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says to his audience that he is stirring up their sincere mind by way of reminder that they should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of their Lord and Savior. Now in this song, Mary remembers in two distinct ways. She remembers what God has done for her and she remembers what God has done for her people, for God's people. Let's look at verse 48. It says, He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. This woman of humble stature, humble beginnings, is seen by God. Mary is seen by the living God. And how wonderful is it that we are seen by God. We are a people seen by God. He calls us the apple of his eye. He calls us the sheep of his pasture. And I hope that you know and believe that God sees and knows your struggles. He may seem distant, but God knows your struggles better than you do better than your friends do, better than your pastors do, better than your counselor does. God knows and sees you. In verse 49, she says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Mary knows that God has done things for her, specifically. She is blessed by him. Mary has received the honor of being the earthly mother of Jesus Christ, God's son, and she worships him because of it. It produces joy. Her remembering produces worship. And I don't know about you, I often think about God in terms of what I owe him. I think about the ways that I failed God and I should be better. And I hear this language in myself and I hear it talking with friends and people in this body and others as well about what I should be doing. And you know what? That can be good. It can be good and it is good to know your sins and to repent of them, to bring them to God and say, God, I'm sorry, I failed. I need your help. I need your grace. But I think we often miss worshiping God in thankfulness. It can be a sin just as much to not be thankful for all the things that God has given us, to leave these goods undone, of speaking truth, of the, the goodness of God, of praising him. You know, it's, uh, this isn't my notes, but it's my father-in-law's birthday today. He's in the audience. Happy birthday, JMO. Shout out to you. Wouldn't it be strange on his birthday if I went up to James and said, you know, I just wanted to tell you how sorry I am that I left my fishing pole on the dock. I wanted to tell you that. No, that's not the right thing to do. He might say, thanks, I appreciate it, but really a happy birthday, I love you, would be more appropriate. It is good to praise God. We, are, we need to praise God. So go to him with your sins. Ask him for forgiveness, but don't leave the goods that he has done in your life unspoken. Remember him like Mary has. And I'll ask you again, do you find yourself doing this? Or do we find ourselves complaining about what hasn't happened, the things that God hasn't done in our lives? Do we find ourselves, if you're a parent out there, do you find yourself complaining about the schedule, sickness, behavior of your kids? I know I, know I do. I know I do. I fall into that trap. But how good is it that God has seen us, that he's loved us, that he's blessed us as his people. So whether you're, it's big or small, I would encourage you and challenge you to look to God and say, God, thank you. Thank you for every little thing you've given me. It is good to praise him in this way.
But Mary also remembers God for not just what he has done for her, but for his work amongst his people. Let's read verse 50. Mary says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary looks not just at what God has done for her. She does that. But then she goes and says, Lord, you have remembered your people for all of time. You have looked to your people Israel. You have saved them. You have rescued them. And if we only look at God and see what he's done in our lives, it can be dangerous. We can miss the scope of God's greatness and how wonderful he is. We can miss the diversity of God's people, both here in our city and across the world. We can miss it. We can miss his faithfulness across all of time. I know sometimes for me when it feels like I'm in a dark season and God isn't working, it can be a tremendous help to look and see, man, God has loved his people for thousands of years. He's never left them. He's never forsaken them. It gives us hope. In verse 51, she says, he has shown strength with his arm. God is not just God is not just loving, he is strong and able to save his people. We can take confidence in the strength of God and the way he has showed it with his people. In Psalm 81, David says, you have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high is your right hand. The God that we worship is the God that parted the Red Sea, that rescued his people from the hand of Pharaoh. This is not the only work he has done. He saved Noah and the ark, like we said earlier. God across all time, has always saved his people with a mighty hand. He is able to save in a way that's powerful and apparent. And lastly, in verse 54, it says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Now I'll tell you, in studying this passage, I had to ask myself, okay, wait a minute. Is Mary talking about God in the past? Is she talking about what he's doing now? Or is she pointing to the future? The language was honestly a little bit confusing to me. And after reading, I learned that the language here, the, the Greek is using what's called the aorist tense. And it's a way of speaking about something that has happened in the past without really saying whether or not it has ended. It sort of just continues into perpetuity. And so a way to think about this would be, I could say, when I had my daughter... I became a father. When I had my daughter, I became a father. Now, has that stopped? Certainly not. I continue to be a father. I will continue to be a father. This is the language that Mary is using here about God's work. He has done great things. He has done great things for me, and he will do great things. And what a blessed truth this is as Christians. We have been saved. God is saving us. And one day, our salvation will be complete. We're heirs, and one day we will receive our inheritance. The Bible tells us that we've seen, we see in a mirror dimly lit, and one day we'll see him face to face. God tells us that he's given us a home. Jesus says he's prepared a place for us, and one day we will live in that place. So as we see, Mary's reflection on God's work in the past doesn't remain in the past. She joyfully looks forward, believing that God will continue to do what he's always done, which is to save his people and we, like Mary, must believe that he will do it again and again. Which brings us to our last point. We magnify God when we believe him. We magnify God when we believe him. Faithful saints have always used the language that sounds something like already but not yet. There's truths that are already here and not yet. 
God has done, done great things and there are still more to come. Like we said earlier, he saved us from our sins. And one day, he'll save us from all the effects of sin. He's given us hope in our hearts. He's given us renewed hearts in saving us. And one day, that experience will be met and felt in real, physical bodies. Now, the ESV describes Luke's salvation summary in this way. It says, Jesus comes as the messianic king to deliver the poor and needy and downcast. He fulfills the whole Old Testament especially its promise of everlasting salvation. The fulfillment comes with this crucifixion and resurrection. And like I said earlier, Mary clearly knows her Bible. She sees God's heart for the needy. But in this song, we get to look forward and see that Jesus will be the embodiment of this. And Mary believes it. She says, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. We can look at the words of Jesus himself about 30 years later in his most famous sermon. In Luke chapter six, Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now for you shall be satisfied But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, as we know, in the end of the story, has turned the world upside down. The first or last, the poor are made rich in the kingdom of God, and the lowly are exalted. And Mary, filled with the Holy Spirit, sings and believes this truth in a wonderful way. In this song, Mary's song, this little hymn by this poor woman, it reminds us that waiting for God changes us. It just does. Waiting for God changes us. And in this moment in the story, Mary herself is waiting on God. She's in between. We know that she is pregnant with the Son of God, but she hasn't seen the birth. She hasn't had him. Mary's still waiting, caught up in God's strange and wonderful plan to bring his own son into the world through a mother. And it's not going to be easy. But rather than bemoan her circumstances or complain, Mary rejoices with God and with others. We know that she's going to endure the pain of childbearing, perhaps the shame and scorn of others, but she's given the gift, as we see, she's been given the gift of nearness to God. She's given the gift of nearness to God. And there's no price too high for being near to God. Her song reminds us that God has not forgotten his poor and needy saints The same God that created man from dust, that made his people Israel a nation from nothing. He's shown his character, as we see in Mary's song once again. He's shown us that he's going to keep his promises. And would we, like Mary, believe that he will do it again and again until he comes? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And God, we thank you for this little song. Lord, we thank you that you use people like Mary or those that are poor and needy and of humble estate to do your work, the work of God in the world. We're so grateful, Lord, and we're so thankful. And we pray that, Lord, her words that she sings here, God, your word would shape us and it would form us to make us a people who magnify you above all else. We pray that you would do this work, God. We love you. And it's the name of Jesus, your son, we pray. Amen.